You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Father, amen to what Pastor Kevin has just now prayed. And, and together in this moment as a church, as we come to your holy scriptures, we pray corporately that we have come with open hearts. Oh, let your ancient words impart by your spirit and in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ secures for us amazing realities. These realities are, are things that we are said to have we possess these realities. We have them. What, what are they? What, what do you think about when you think about what Jesus has done for you? What comes to your mind? What comes to your mind if someone were to say, what has Jesus Christ done for you? The forgiveness of sins, the giving, imputing of his righteousness, a new heart, eternal life, the right to be called the children of God, the fulfillment, the amen to all of God's promises. There there is a long list of things that we could say. The, The New Testament is chock full of these gospel realities. And in Hebrews chapter 10, we see two of them mentioned. First in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, The writer tells us that we have confidence or authorization to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. We saw that two weeks ago, all right? We we have that authorization. The second thing that chapter 10 tells us we have in verse 34, the writer says that we have a better possession and an abiding one. And this is what Pastor Max showed us last week. He showed us that, that what we possess in Jesus is better than every valuable thing of this world, and it abides. It lasts forever. It can't be taken away. So in chapter 10, we see we have authorization. We have what is better. But who is the we here? Who exactly possesses these gospel realities? Okay, I'm about to say something that I think is super basic, all right, but I want you to really hear this, okay? All of the gospel realities talked about in the New Testament, from the forgiveness of sins to the authorization that we have to be with God mentioned here in Hebrews, all of the gospel realities mentioned in the New Testament They only belong to those who have put their faith in Jesus in his death and resurrection. For example, say it like this, God will not forgive your sins if you do not trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That clear? That's the negative. Here's the positive. God will forgive your sins if you trust in the death and resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. All of the gospel realities, the wonderful, amazing gospel realities, all of them belong to us on the condition of our faith. We must believe in Jesus. And, and having this kind of faith and enduring in this faith is a big deal in the New Testament book of Hebrews. This is a major concern for the writer of Hebrews. And on one hand, this should be sobering to us, that, that we have need of endurance. We have to have real faith, right? We have to have real enduring faith. That's sobering. On the other hand, though, this should be encouraging to us because the writer in this book, like a good coach, he assures us that we are those who have enduring faith. He wants us to know that. He does something here at the end of chapter 10 that he also did uh, in chapter six. Now, if you remember in chapter six, um, after a warning that he gives, this is another two big warning passages in Hebrews. After the big warning passage in chapter six, the, the warning to the church about the real threat of walking away from Jesus, that warning's in chapter six. After he warns the church of that threat, he ends that part by saying, but in your case, beloved, I am convinced of better things. He's encouraging. You can fall away, he says, but in your case, I know your faith is real. Well, here in chapter 10, he does the same thing. In chapter 10, after warning the church again about the real threat of walking away from Jesus, he concludes the section by saying, but you are not like those who shrink back, those who fall away, those who walk away from Jesus. You are not like them, you are of faith. That's what he says in verse 39, right? See that? So faith then, faith is absolutely necessary. We must have faith. We must have faith. And the writer of Hebrews says that we do have faith. Well, wait a minute. What, what is faith? Right? If, if faith is something that we have to have. If, if faith is a big theme that this book talks about over and over again, we should probably have an idea of what faith is, right? You guys agree with that? The, the writer of this book certainly thinks so. Because what he does now, beginning in chapter 11, in verse 1, what we find here is the longest treatment of the topic of faith in the Bible. Across these 40 verses in chapter 11, the word faith is repeated 24 times. And what's really amazing about Hebrews 11 is that it's not just that faith is talked about, but faith is illustrated. I think what's implied by that is that we can understand faith better by seeing it demonstrated more than by only seeing it analyzed. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't analyze faith. The writer, he, he analyzes faith in verse one, but that, that part is brief, okay? Most of chapter 11 is the writer of Hebrews saying, let me show you how faith looks. 
That's the outline, okay? That's the outline for the sermon. The writer is saying, part one, what is faith? And then in part two, he says, hold my beer, right? I'm going to show you, watch this. You want to know what faith is? Watch this. And then for the entirety of this book, after verse one, he, he demonstrates for us. He shows us how faith looks. And so this is the outline, okay? Part one is faith analyzed. Part two is faith demonstrated. Faith analyzed, faith demonstrated. We're going to start here in part one. And this is just one verse, Hebrews 11, verse 1. Hebrews 11, verse 1, some, some commentators, this one mentioned, some commentators make a point to say that the writer of Hebrews is not trying to define faith here. They say he's not really into definitions, that's not what he's doing. I just want to clarify that the writer here in verse 1, he is not giving us a comprehensive definition here. But he is telling us what faith is, okay? The, Hebrews 11.1 may not be a full definition, but he's not not defining it, okay? The first three words here are, now faith is. He's about to tell us what it is. He's going to tell us what faith is. He gives us a general analysis of faith, which means if we're reading this book, if we're hearing this book, we're leaning forward here, man. We want to know what he's about to say in verse 1. Look at this, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I remember this verse from the King James Version as a kid. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, depending on your English translation here, there's a lot of different words that can be inserted there for assurance and conviction. Right? And there are different reasons why. But, but the main thing to understand here is that faith is not a feeling. Faith is not a slippery emotional state that waxes and wanes. In general terms, faith is the present embrace of a concrete, substantial reality that is yet unseen. Faith, it, anticipate, it accesses and anticipates the reality of unseen things just as we do seen things. I think one thing that can help us here is, is the way that our memory works. Memory, okay? So look, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna, this is going to be analytical, okay? So I need you to hang with me for just a few minutes. Just, I need you to think here, okay? Um, it's going to be brief, all right? But just think about how memory works. How's memory work? Memory allows us to mentally and emotionally access the past even when we cannot physically see the thing in mind. For example, growing up between my house, my parents' house and my grandparents' house, there was a long dirt path that went all the way into the woods, past a couple fields into the woods. It was sandy dirt, you know, had a little, 
little green grass patch growing in the middle. San- sandy dirt, the kind of dirt that you, you would know about if you've ever been to the, the, the coastal plain region in North Carolina. Sandy, almost like beach sand, but not. And this path, went, standing from my parents' house, it went all the way down out of sight, into the woods, like hooked around my great-grandparents' house, through some more woods, and it kind of came out at this pond that was surrounded by trees. Now, there is no question in my mind that this path exists, right? Even though physically right now I can't see it. There's no question in my mind that it's real, that it exists. Because I have seen it. In my memory, I embrace the substantial reality of what is currently unseen to me, but seen before. That's what we do with memory. I remember it. We were just there this past summer. I remember it. Now faith works in a similar way. All right, not the same way, a similar way. In that faith embraces the substantial reality of what up to this point has never been seen by me. With faith, I can't remember the substantial reality because I've not seen it, but I imagine the substantial reality because I am convinced it's real. I believe, see, I have faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. And that applies to unseen things of the future, which is how we normally think about faith. But it also applies to the unseen things of the past. And here in verse 2, the writer says that by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. Now, the idea behind this phrase, the people of old, is to say the ancients of redemptive history. He's talking about Old Testament believers. These ancient Old Testament believers, by their faith, they were commended by God. And now this, this sets up the amazing hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 1, the writer gives us a brief general analysis of faith. And then right away in verse 2, he gets to showing us again how faith is demonstrated. He says, this is how faith looks. So we're at part two already. That was part one, faith analyzed. Now we're at part two, faith demonstrated. And there's something I want you to notice here uh, that the writer does when he wants to show us faith demonstrated. Um, He's going to repeat in this chapter over and over again, by faith this and by faith that. And those two words there, by faith, if you just read through the, glance through the chapter, those two words by faith are mentioned all through chapter 11. And beginning in verse 4, each time he says by faith, he's referring to one of these ancient figures from redemptive history. He's talking about the faith of these Old Testament saints. They are the examples here. But notice what he does first in verse 3. This was new, this was new to me this week. I've read this chapter countless times. Never, never really called what was happening in verse 3. The first thing that a writer says to show us faith demonstrated is not the faith of Old Testament saints. It's our own faith. 
Look at, look at this in verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen, the universe, was not made out of things that are visible. It was made by the invisible Word of God. Now, my guess for most of us who are familiar with this chapter, if you know Hebrews 11, if you think about Hebrews 11, you think about the hall of faith, right? If I were to say, what is Hebrews 11 about? You would say, oh man, by faith Noah, and by faith Abraham, and by faith Moses, right? We would think about these amazing Old Testament saints, but the writer starts in Hebrews 11 by saying, by faith we. And I think this, I think him doing this is, is very strategic for a couple of reasons. First, the writer wants us to make a direct connection between his analysis of faith in verse 1 and our own experience of faith. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. For example, just take the way we consider the universe. Nobody doubts that the universe is real because we're standing on it. Like we're breathing in the air of the universe. We, we inhabit the universe, okay? So like there's, it's pretty reliable to say the universe is a thing, right? It's a thing. We're here, we're on it. The universe is a substantial reality that we see and it was created by the Word of God, which we do not see. The unseen Word of God created the seen world. That was in the past, and we understand that by faith. Now, the writer obviously assumes that Christians embrace the Word of God as the origin of the universe. It wasn't the only idea. There were, there were pagan ideas for how the universe started way back then. The Big Bang Theory we know about, that would come later in the 1930s. But either way here, whatever time, the, the, the truth remains about what he says. The truth that he says here still applies. For example, the, the Big Bang Theory says that everything started with a primeval atom, right? There was before anything, there was a single particle just there and it exploded into the universe and everything that we have here today. Now, guess what? Anybody see that happen? Anybody there? Anybody got a video? Of course not. Of course not. No one saw that. So either way you look at it, the only option for the origin of the universe is that it was caused by something unseen, which means whatever your position is, it is a fate position. You, you know that, right? Whatever your position is on the origin of the universe, it is a position of faith. The question is whether your faith is in a theory invented by man about a hypothetical particle or if your faith is in the Word of God. And as Christians, like this, 
we, we, have, we put our faith in the invisible word of God. We live in the visible, substantial reality of what the invisible word of God created. And so verse one is not an empty, uh, you know, distant analysis about faith, but this is our experience, the writer's saying. We have this kind of faith. Here, here's the second thing he's doing. This is, I think this is also important for us to, to, to know. He starts here in verse three with by faith we, because he wants us to know that we are in the same company as the Old Testament saints. We are like them in that we share the same faith as they do. And I, I mean, it's hard for me to imagine anything more encouraging than that. If I'm reading this book, if I'm struggling as a first century Christian, and someone told me that, See, what he's, what he's doing here, he's not just trying to give examples of the heroes of faith as if, as if they're out of our reach. This is, this is, this is important. We should, not, we should not read Hebrews 11 and be like, oh, I can never be like those guys. I can never be like them. They're so great. That's not what he's doing. In fact, there is not a single place in the New Testament that talks about Old Testament believers that way. In fact, James, in James chapter 5, he wants to encourage the church to pray, and he uses the prophet Elijah as an example. And he doesn't say, Elijah is so much greater than us, guys. Good luck being able to pray like him. doesn't say that. Instead, he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. The prophet Elijah was like us. We can have faith like he did. We can believe the way that he believed. That's the same heart here in Hebrews 11. These examples here are examples to be imitated. The saints described in Hebrews 11, I want you to read Hebrews 11 and know these are our people, y'all. Like these are our people, man. We are with them. That's what he wants us to know. Let me tell you about three of them. Abel, Enoch, and Noah, Genesis 4, 5, and 6. These are your people, all right? Let's start with Abel. Verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now we read the story of Abel, Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. Adam and Eve had their first son Cain, and then they had Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep. Cain was a worker of the ground, and in the course of time, they both brought an offering to God, to make a sacrifice to God, to give God worship. And Cain brought produce because he was a farmer. Abel brought an animal because he was a shepherd. And Genesis 4.4 says that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And we don't know exactly why this is the case. The text of Genesis doesn't tell us. We just know that God accepted, God was pleased with Abel and his offering. And here the writer of Hebrews says that God was commending him commending him. See, that word's used a lot here, that word commending. It's used in verse 2 
twice in verse 4, in verse 5, then again in verse 39. And the word means, it means to bear witness. It means to give testimony, where we get the word martyr. The writer of Hebrews says that God commended or God testified that Abel was righteous. How did God do that? How did God make that testimony? By accepting his gift. That's what he says. And the word here for accepting means to be pleased with. So, so the way that, that God testified that Abel was righteous is that God was pleased with Abel and his gift. So I want you to hold that for a minute, okay? I'm going I'm to say a sentence. I want you to grab it and just kind of like hold it right here. Here it is. God testified that Abel is righteous by being pleased with Abel and his gift. Hold that, okay? Enoch, verse 5, look at verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So we read about Enoch in Genesis 5, and he was different, man, okay? Enoch was like an extremely unique person in human history because Enoch never died. He's, he's listed in the genealogy in Genesis 5 from Adam to Noah. And over and over again in that genealogy, after the text mentions the person's name and how long that person lived, it has these three words, and they died. And so if you were to read Genesis 5 over and over again, it says, you know, they lived this long and died. They lived this long and died. They lived this long and died over and over again. But when we come to Enoch in Genesis 5 verse 21, it's different. Let me read to you what, what Enoch did. Genesis 5, 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Hashtag math. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. See, he didn't die. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing. Hebrews 11.5, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. But when the writer, what the writer says here in Hebrews is that before Enoch was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now, where is the writer of Hebrews getting that? Because I'm not seeing it in Genesis 5. You didn't hear that when I read it. All right, so this is what I need you to do this, okay? I want you to track with me here. I warned you about this. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Genesis 4. I want to encourage you to turn to Genesis 4 if you can, okay? Um, everybody else, just hang in there. All right, look with the neighbor if you, if, if you can. Um, if you can look at Genesis 4 in your English translation. Now, most English versions have a footnote, a little number beside the phrase, uh, Enoch walked with God. Now, if you look down at the bottom of your page, if you, if, you read, if you read an English standard version like me, most versions do this, if you follow the footnote, the footnote says, quote, Septuagint, 
pleased God. Anybody see that? Anybody? Okay, you got to trust Max and me. You got to trust Brooke and me, all right? It's there, all right, in, in, in Genesis 4. The Septuagint, which is what the footnote is referring to, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew. It dates back to the third century. And the Septuagint is important because that was the Bible that the New Testament authors would have read, okay? In the Septuagint, in Genesis 5.21, the Septuagint translated Enoch walked with God as Enoch pleased God. Because that, that's the same idea, see? The idea, the idea is that Enoch had fellowship with God. He walked with God. He was close to God like that. He actually walked with God. He had a relationship with God, which means he pleased God. The Septuagint translators, they just interpreted, what does it mean to walk with God? It means to be pleasing to God. It means that Enoch's life was pleasing to God. And so when the writer of Hebrews read Genesis 5 in the Septuagint, he's like, yeah, God testified, God testified that Enoch pleased him. So hold that, right? We had Abel, Abel pleased God, Enoch pleased God. You guys got that? Got it? Okay. Now, this is something that both Abel and Enoch, and we'll see Noah, they had in common. God commended them both. He commended them both and he testified that they both pleased God. But wait a minute, why are we talking about pleasing God? I thought that Hebrews 11 was about faith, right? So what they please God? This is about faith. We have to wonder then what's the connection between pleasing God and having faith? What's the connection between pleasing God and having faith? That's a great question. Look at Hebrews 11 verse 6. See that? And without faith, it is impossible to please him. This is the high water mark of the passage. Verse six is the explanation for why Abel and Enoch can be said to have faith, although we don't see Genesis four and five mention faith explicitly. What the, what the writer's doing here, he's, he's put together a very basic syllogism. I told you guys, I, hang with me, okay? A very, very basic syllogism here. This is what he's saying. He's saying major premise, Abel and Enoch pleased God. Minor premise, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Conclusion, therefore, Abel and Enoch had faith. Do you see what he's doing here? The, the, this is really important because the first three examples of faith in Hebrews 11, in Abel and Enoch and Noah, these examples of faith only work because of this logic. Because if you go to Genesis 4, 5, and 6, faith is not mentioned. Genesis never explicitly mentions their faith. It just shows us, tells us that they please God, and then it shows us what they did. That was Noah's case. Verse 7, look at Noah, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. 
And you can see in verse 7 how the writer is demonstrating what the writer's already said in verse 1. Noah built an ark because he embraced the substantial reality of something he had not seen. And his embrace of that unseen substantial reality led him to do something. He lived differently. He acted because of his faith. He built a boat. That's what action looks like, according to verse 1, the action of faith. But again, in Genesis, the text never says that Noah had faith. So listen to Genesis 6, verse 9. Genesis 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. If you're reading that in the Septuagint, guess what it says? Noah pleased God. And so according to the logic of Hebrews 11, verse 6, if Noah pleased God, then Noah had faith. And by his faith, he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. That is a real thing. The righteousness that comes by faith is real. And Noah became part of that. Noah experienced that. And what's implied here is that we can too. All of us can too, by faith. We can join Noah in being heirs of the righteousness that comes by faith. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, verse 6, it really is the high watermark of the passage. And I want us to end here in verse 6. Look at the second part of verse 6. First he says, for without faith, it is impossible to please God. Then in the second part of verse six, he explains more of what he means by that. He says, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So the writer's taking the logic here of Abel and Enoch and Noah's faith, and he's stating it now as a general principle. This goes for everybody now. If you want to draw near to God, which is a big theme in the book of Hebrews, if you want to walk with God, if you want to be with God, if you want to please God, you must believe that God is real and consequential. It matters, in other words, that God is God. It matters that God is God. The reality of God is not, it can't be, something that we acknowledge and then put to the side and get on with the rest of our lives. That's not how it works. You guys know, y'all know that I love Pastor John Piper, right? Like he's had, I'm so thankful for his influence on me. And uh, one sentence from Pastor John from years ago that I remember, as much as any sentence, and there's there's a lot of good sentences, right? but one, one thing he said that has stuck with me, he said this, I think, with genuine bafflement. He said, quote, I don't understand how someone can believe that God exists and then only give him 2% of their lives. Because if you believe God exists, you believe he's God, right? Like if, if, if God exists, God exists. <laughs> See how that works? He's God. 
He's God, you're not. He's God, they're not. If God exists, God exists. And if you want to have a relationship with this God, you got to believe He's real. You got to believe that His realness makes a difference in the world and in your life. In other words, in other words, you have to believe that He rewards those who seek Him. If you seek God, He will reward you. That's what this is. With what? <laughs> What's the reward? I like rewards. What's the reward? God will reward you with that for which you seek, which is Him. If you seek God, He will reward you with Himself. I want so badly for us to believe that as a church. No sure promise in the past. If you seek God, He will reward you with Himself. You get Him. You, we can have God. And that's what faith is all about. That is why faith is pleasing to God. Because faith magnifies the glory of God. Faith is not a coping mechanism to get through the hardships of life. Faith, biblical faith says, I want Him. I want Him whom I have never seen. I want Him and all the gospel realities in Him whom I have never seen, but one day will. And that's what brings us now to this table. So far in Hebrews 11, the writer has talked about faith in, in pretty generic terms, right? He gives us the basics of what faith is and how faith looks. But here at the table is where we want to get laser focused, okay? Nothing, nothing generic at this table. Our faith in God is faith in Jesus Christ. And our faith in Jesus Christ is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for us. That's what the bread and the cup symbolizes. We take the bread at this table, the bread represents the broken body of Jesus for us. The cup that we take represents the, the shed blood of Jesus for us. And what we're doing, when we eat that bread and we drink that cup, we are saying, this is my faith. This, Him. I want Him. That's what the table says. So this morning, if you're here and you trust in Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I invite you to eat and drink with us and give Him thanks. If you're here this morning and you have not yet put your faith in Jesus, if you've not yet put your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, I invite you to do that today. Put your faith in Him today. We're going to serve the bread first. I want you just to, to retain it, hold it. I'll come back up. We're going to eat it all together. The body of Jesus is the true bread. Let us serve you.